0: Uh, Today we're in the book of Jude, we're in the next to the last book of the Bible, and so when Erica just said, uh, after next week, book of Revelation, the following week, July 31st, will be testimony Sunday, uh, because we're coming to the end of the Bible, that doesn't mean that we're not going to talk about the Bible anymore, Uh, it's a weekly thing for us, if you're new to the Table Church, um, welcome, we're so excited you're here and a part of our conversation. And so the Bible takes up a part of that conversation each week as we gather and uh, gives us encouragement, gives us hope, uh, helps us understand our identity. How did we get here? What went wrong? Is there any hope? And how does the story end? You know, those kind of big questions that that we're all asking. Uh, We we think the Bible has a unique, hopeful, Uh, approach to each of those very relevant questions. And so believers, uh, believers, again, the the table is that sort of safe place where we can engage with God and uh, what God would say to us. Uh, Well, as we uh, come to this uh, next last book of the Bible, it's one of the shortest. I was looking back through the books of the Bible, and I think this one, in terms of word count, uh, is the fifth of the shortest books of the Bible. Remember, 3 John, that's probably, in terms of word counting, that's the shortest one. And you've got Second John, and then I believe it's uh, Obadiah might be next, one of those small Old Testament books, um, and then, of course, fighting So today, we're in Jude. Two major themes we're going to be looking at here in just a moment. I'm going to tell you what those two themes are. Um, and if you're on your phone and you're looking, you, you can see what those themes already are. You know, you know the main points. of of where I'm hoping to take us. Uh, The first one is all glory to God. So we're gonna be talking about, and Jude talks a lot about God's glory. And then the second main point is that we are joyfully kept by God. What in the world does that mean? Well, if you're a fan of Steinbeck, you know one of his books, The Red Pony, and in that book he talks about and thinks a lot about you know, 19th century expansion westward, and almost uh, in this pursuit of glory, this pursuit of something more, this gnawing, raw hunger of the soul that wants things to be faster, beautiful, more brighter, more hopeful. And so, uh, if you've been reading about California history, uh, as I have, you know that that pursuit kept leading westward and westward and westward, all the way to here at the coast of San Francisco. And in Steinbeck's book, The Red Pony, I'll quote, he says, there was this disillusionment, however. So imagine, you're on that journey, you finally get as far west as you need to go, and it was almost disappointing. He says, there was this disillusionment at the end of the journey. Every man wanted something for himself, but the big beast, was all of them wanted, only westering, meaning, can't we go even farther? Then we came down to the sea, and it was done. There was no place to go. There's the ocean to stop you. He brings up a very important point, I believe, about the human soul. This longing, this gnawing, hunger, and search for glory hunger for things to be more, perhaps more beautiful than what we see and can experience, and perhaps even a glory that we were actually made for, but they were not quite experiencing. Uh, let's talk a little bit about our author, Jude, and uh, you know, I'm going to mention a little bit about him as an author, and am going to do a quick um, book summary, and then we'll do a uh, sample passage from, from the book of Jude. Jude. Um, Jude is one of the four brothers of Jesus. Uh, Some of us listening to this is, wait a minute, Jesus had brothers? Yes. Uh, The scriptures in the New Testament mentions Jude. He's one of Jesus' four brothers. And prior to Jesus' death and resurrection, these four brothers weren't necessarily viewed as followers of Jesus. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, (coughs) proving that he was indeed the Messiah, those brothers became followers and this one Jude here is, is known for being a leader in the Jewish Christian community. He's known for being a, a traveling teacher and missionary. And his audience, Jude knows his audience is, um, is Jewish, right? It's, uh, it was first century, and so now this evolving new faith called Christianity isn't just comprised of Jews, but it's now comprised of other nationalities, other ethnicities was on God's heart from the very beginning. And so Jude is writing with Messianic Jews in mind, as those Jews who call on Jesus as the true Messiah. Therefore, that influences how Jude writes his letter. You see a lot of Old Testament references. He's going to drop this example or that example in his letter of Jude, because he knows his audience very well. Uh, Jude is pronounced Judah. In, in Greek and in Hebrew, uh, not Judah from the Old Testament, uh, not to get confused with who that is. And um, a little bit about his writing style, he, he's, he has this deep knowledge of the Hebrew Old Testament, and he wants his audience to be reminded of the story. There's persecution going on in the first century. Um, it's almost apocalyptic in the way that he's writing it, but he's wanting to encourage them that their faith isn't something new, but their faith has always been there because God has always been there. And they're just part of this narrative, this, this, uh, this story. There's interestingly some similarities between 2 Peter and Jude, as I studied it this uh, Maybe you've noticed that before too, if you remember reading or studying through 2 Peter or Jude. Some of the similarities um, is that they're both written around the mid-60s uh, A.D. And commentators would say that Jude may have been a source for Peter. As Peter is writing his second letter, his second epistle, that perhaps commentators surmise that Peter is using Jude as a source. This letter, this very letter here. Uh, Both 2 Peter and Jude quote from what we would call extra-biblical sources or materials, known as the Apocrypha. Um, You're like, wait a minute, what? Yes, uh, Jude does that. Um, 2 Peter does that. Um, One is called the Assumption of Moses and then 1 Enoch. Basically, Jude is doing this. He's drawing on those resources to emphasize his point of the pride and godlessness of the false teachers that have crept into the church. Um, And then uh, lastly, both of these books confront these false teachers and they they use God's grace as a license for immorality. So these people uh, that Peter's writing to, in 2 Peter and these people that Jude are writing to who are false teachers, they say they believe in God's grace, but they're only using God's grace as a license to go and do whatever the heck they want to do. Like, go ahead and sin boldly because we can ask for forgiveness later. That sort of mentality. Um, and so there's this uh, loving and persistent warning. Again, that Jude is, that's part of his role. He's wanting to warn about these false teachers. And uh, a few things I learned about these false teachers is um, they're within the church community. I mean, that may seem like a no-brainer, but if you slow it down a little bit and reread it, these false teachers are in the Christian community. They're actually in the church, and yet they're not truly Christians. Um, that, that may remind you of false teachers that you may know about or have heard about. And um, Jude is saying, stay alert. Stay alert. Be on guard for these false teachers and be alert for the return of Jesus Jesus is coming. And so Jude and countless other Old Testament and New Testament authors, along with Jesus himself, would say that Jesus is coming back to judge those false teachers. It will happen. Jude is about, you know, be, beware of spiritual bullies and spiritually abusive people. And that sounds like a theme we've heard on several Sundays when we've gathered to talk about Our journey through scripture. Each of these prophets, a lot of these New Testament writers talking about, you know, be aware of these types. Now, if you uh, are perhaps already reading right now through the book of Jude as we go through this, because it only takes like two minutes uh, to read the whole book. You're probably noticing that Jude uses some impolite words to describe some of these false teachers. Yeah, he does. He calls them hidden reefs that will hurt you. He says they're like shepherds who only feed themselves. <clears throat> Meaning you're going to die because the of the shepherd providing for you and helping you find nourishment and rest, these false teachers are only out for themselves. Uh, he calls them waterless clouds. Man, imagine that. Uh, they give no rain. He calls them fruitless trees. They're just leading you to trees that don't even have freedom. They're false teaching. And he calls them wild waves producing the foam of their own shape. Like God. And he also calls them wandering stars in the gloom of darkness. So imagine having a leader that is described as a wandering star. the gloom of darkness that's only going to be able to And so Jude isn't just, you know, saying some impolite things about them. Um, Their theology was bad, although it is bad. But he's really talking about their character. Right? Because as we learn in the Old Testament, false teaching isn't just, it is, but it isn't just things that are said that are inaccurate regarding God's character, but it's about the person's character. It's about a lack of concern for the poor. It's about a lack of compassion for all peoples. It's an arrogance. It's thinking one is more holy than other people. So Jude calls them grumblers, malcontent. They only follow their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters. They show favoritism in order to gain advantage. They're stoppers who cause division and worldly devoid of the Spirit of God. Wow. Are you impressed already with how dense Jude is? It's just 25 verses. And he's going after these false teachers. And yet, after going after these false teachers, Jude ends with a doxology. And that's where we want to focus this morning. He ends with a doxology. And he does so because he wants you and I to know as believers for the first century and this modern day time that we have unbelievable hope amidst a world that is pretty effed up, amidst false teachers who are within the church and leading uh, and sort of smuggling death into the church. So let's at do this doxology together. It's Jude, verses 24 and 25. I'll read it out loud. Now, all glory to God, who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who alone is God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. All glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all time and in the present and beyond all time. Amen. So there's two things we want to look at today. All glory to God. And joyfully kept by God. We'll take this first one here. All glory to God. Now if you're reading that passage again, or that doxology, or if you're taking notes right now, you probably want to underline or highlight that word glory, even that phrase, glory to God. What is the glory of God? It's fair to ask that, right? Uh, In preparation for our time this morning, I was was looking just at sort of a general definition uh, of glory. What does that mean? What does the word glory mean? Well, there's a a noun and a verb, and the noun means high renown won by notable achievements. There's some sort of fame. There's something that someone has done, they've won something by doing something Um, And by the way, you might be thinking of morning glory, like like the most wonderful muffin (laughs) that humans have ever made. That's that's my all-time favorite muffin, especially after a long run on Saturdays with my run club, is is, uh, to to hang out a little bit and get that morning glory muffin. Uh, But but it is that um, there has been something that that person or that thing has accomplished and has done so we say that 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 thing or that person has glory another definition would be there is a magnificence to it or to them there is a great beauty there's a weightiness that that thing or that person has we say that it has glory Um, you might imagine you know whatever your favorite restaurant is and, and, and I want you to imagine like Somewhere in San Francisco, your favorite place to eat. And the trouble with, I know, there's so many choices, right? (laughs) Sometimes the trouble with uh, being at that place is that we can't order everything that we want to order. And so to help us understand glory, it means to imagine somehow being able to consume all of it at the same time, taste it, of course not vomit afterwards, but but to enjoy it simultaneously, if there were So it's that summation of, of all it. And the verb glory, if we were to say to glory in something, you take glory in something. It means uh, to, to take great pleasure in something. That's why the scriptures would say, take glory in God. Yes, glory belongs to God, but we also can take glory in God. We can find pleasure in God can find our identity in God. So in case I lost you, let's ask it again. What is the glory of God? It's the manifest beauty of all of God's perfections. As if you could pile all up, as if you could pile up all the great things God's done in your life. You've written a journal that completely, which none of us have. But if you could keep going back and keep going back and seeing, counting, recounting all the miracles, all the great things God has done, the summation of all that is so weighty, you would then circle the whole thing and say, that's God's glory. You might say it's at least the combined magnitude of all of God's attributes and qualities put together. Um, Caroline, my wife, um, I know she's Spoken on this before, and there's, there's a practice of, in, in prayer, uh, the A to Z prayer, meaning calling to mind attributes of God, just going through the letters A through Z. Literally, when, when we sort of doubt and wonder, well, what should I be praying about right now? Well, thank God for His attributes. Start with the letter A. And he's awesome. God, you're awesome. Or, or, or B, God, you're beautiful. And, and, and work your way. And so, again, the glory of God would be all of that. All of his beautiful actions. And to reflect on those. uh, The Baroque composer Johann Sebastian Bach is known for, at the end of his compositions, signing it, SDG. Right? Some of us are familiar with this. And this SDG stands for Soli Deo Gloria. Which is Latin for all glory to God. Remember, this is what Jude's trying to talk about. Not just randomly on some talk about glory. What, are the, what is it and all this? Jude is talking about God's glory. It's different than what the false teachers are talking about. False teachers... Selfish, are wanting glory themselves. Hey, look at me. I'm the hero. And Jude is trying to get our attention back on the real hero of the story. Or even, uh, I was thinking through the summary of the Protestant Reformation. You know, uh, if, if you go back and study the Protestant Reformation, there are these famous five solas. The word sola meaning only or alone. And uh, you, you've probably studied them, you may recite them with me, but the first one was sola scriptura, meaning it's the scriptures alone that speak to our conscience. It's not some preacher, it's not some denomination, it's not the church, but there's tremendous beauty and authority from the scriptures alone that no human has over us, only God has. And then the second solo was uh, sola fide, meaning it's by faith alone that one is saved or brought into a personal relationship with. And then it gives us the third solo, solus Christus. So it's by faith alone in Christ alone. Not Christ plus some good efforts, some good deeds, to be tried real hard, and, but Christ alone, his life death, resurrection, a life lived for you is what secures our identity. And then the fourth solo was sola gratia, Meaning it's by grace alone that any of us humans could dare even say that, that, that we have a relationship with God. God loves you. God sought you out by His grace. That's the whole story of the Bible. And then, of course, the fifth solo is this uh, Sola, or Soli Deo Gloria. gloria. That's, the, that's the narrative. I mean, if you, if you were to try to summarize the Bible, if you have a, either a Christian friend who's struggling in their faith, or if you have a non-Christian friend saying, yeah, hey, just 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 sort of summarize it. Just, just give it to me like, what's the summary of the Bible? I don't need a 30-minute talk. I don't have time to read the whole thing. Like, like what is it? You could probably say, it's Soli Deo Gloria. For God's glory. For God's glory. This brings me in my personal reflection to my career. I invite you to think about your career. I invite you to think about your goals, your identity. And I'm asking such a reflection question um, about my pursuit, your pursuit, our pursuit of glory. Think about what we said glory is. And think about what we said glory to God means. And something to think about. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, where Paul is writing to that city there in Corinth. And he says to those, some new believers, some older believers, he says to them, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Paul's reminding us again, glorifying God doesn't just mean coming to church on Sunday. Glorifying God is in our professions, in our careers, in the goals that we're making, in the very identity that we find ourselves taking upon. And our search for this fame and glory is just not all it's cracked up to be. Is it? I think that was... Part of John Steinbeck's point in the, in the Red Pony. Getting us visually to think about being right here on the coast. Man, we're doing it. We're going. west, Which was great. we finally getting there and saying, oh, is this where it is? What was all this for? Or as Shakespeare said, I would give all my fame for a pot of ale and saviour. I'd trade it all in. It didn't last that long, the fame, the fortune, the, the, the attention, the whatever pleasure I was getting from that part of my identity. I would trade it all in. Well, we'll move on now, as we've uh, got lost to think about there, to this next main point of joyfully kept, joyfully kept by God. This isn't a new concept for Jude. We did just read it in verse 24. God's going to keep us. If you scroll back up and look at verse 1, Jude mentions it there as well. So he's sort of starting his letter with being kept by God, and he's ending his letter of being kept by God. Verse 1, I'll read it. That we, or you, your identity being God. It says you've been called by God the Father who loves you. And keeps you. And he keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. Reflection question. What portion of our day is being mindful and present enough to know that you are being kept by God? From what, we might ask? From utterly drifting away. From utterly going our own way. And at times, we do that. And yet, being kept is this utter commitment by God, as the good shepherd would be there in Psalm 23, to come after us, to recapture us. Or in Jude, verse 5, check this one out. Jude's startling remarks in verse 5 is that it was Jesus who brought God's people out of Egypt. Egypt. Centuries before the Incarnation. What? Okay, Incarnation. Let's read a little bit. Remember, God becomes human in the person of Jesus so that we might know God, be able to see Him, touch Him, hear Him. And yet Judas is saying in verse 5 that Jesus is the one that brought God's people out of Egypt. Wow. God is keeping His people. We know it was Moses. Moses was that leader. But he's saying that Jesus is the actual one who was there in their midst, bringing them out of that wilderness, taking them into the promised land. God is keeping these people. God will uh, make sure that we are kept. Teaching us here, I believe, as he he gives us this example in verse 5, teaching us that Christ's saving word is not just some isolated event, but it goes back It goes back in history and actually extends farther forward in history. It's not some isolated event. Uh, There in the first century, where he dies on a cross and rises from the dead. I'm, I'm mindful of Psalm 121 that says, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord will protect you from evil, He will keep your soul. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you does not sleep. Wow. Many of us, dare I say all of us, get weak and we slip. Many of us can, can agree and identify with what the Apostle Paul writes about in his letter to Romans, particularly chapter 7, where he says, I don't understand the things that I do. The very good that I And the very thing I hate, the things I know I ought not to do, the things that will not glorify God, I end up doing it. What a sinner I am. But all glory be to you, God, for rescuing me. That's what being kept means. If you're reading here, uh, you know, in in Jude, uh, please don't misunderstand being kept by God so that you won't slip. It does not mean that You won't sin again. There's a misunderstanding that a lot of Christians and non Christians alike may have, and and that's not what's being presented here. But it's talking about a a much longer arc of salvation and how salvation actually works. There's the work of salvation that Christ did on the cross, and that's finished. You can't add to that or improve or upgrade on that. And they were finally saved when, almost like finishing the race, we are kept. We are brought across the finish line. Stumbling as we may, uh, limping as we may, <laughs> crawling as we may be, hurt. God is able to keep you from falling away. That's what Jude's wanted his readers to get and understand. You're being kept. And being kept by God helps us all the more give glory to God. They're connected there together, Beautiful. Or you may remember Philippians, one of the previous letters of Paul looked at several weeks ago, Philippians chapter one, verse six. Paul's talking about the same message here. He says, there has never been the slightest doubt in my mind that the God who started this great work in you would keep at it and bring it to a flourishing finish on the very day that Christ Jesus appears. Thank God that Paul did not say, I have no doubt in my mind that you will be such a good Christian and you will be the one that just, you know, does what it takes. You'll just make it happen. No. Paul is giving glory to God by saying, I have no doubt in my mind that the same God who started this journey of faith in you, he, that same God, our great Savior, will carry it out to completion. You can't lose your salvation. The same God who found you by grace is strong enough, and there's a tenacity and a commitment about who God is, very character, that you will be kept. Jesus prays this in John chapter 17 before he's going to be crucified. He's praying for his disciples who are sleeping at the moment. But he also prays for future disciples. That'd be you, me, others of us. It's now living out in the first century. And he prays for them that they would be kept by God. That's beautiful. Oh, Father, keep them. Keep them in the truth. Uh, Jude goes on here to say that, that, that God will bring you into his glorious presence without a single fault. I hope you meditate on that all week long. God will bring you, read it with me, just look at the text. God will bring you into his presence without a single fault. If you're not honest with ourselves, you're like, I got many faults. I got new ones each day. I got old ones, it's hard to get over. But again, Jude is underscoring something incredibly beautiful about God's grace, a unique feature of the Christian faith, and that is that God views us in the same way that he views Christ. Not because I'm holy, but we've been declared righteous. It's hard to get. It's called the gospel. It's the good news. And there should be that reaction against it real quick that says, yeah, but that can't be true. You don't know my past. And that is the glory of this good news. That is the weight of this good news, is God sees you differently. Believe it. Lean upon it. Get your identity from it daily, moment by moment. I asked this question this week when I read that and sat on that for a few moments. Yeah, but with what emotion does God do that? Well, he tells us, Jude says, look in verse 24, with great joy. Are you feeling this? Are you feeling this with me as we read this? But God is able to keep you from stumbling. God is able to bring you into his glorious presence, not by uh, just presenting us as who we are. Oh, here's one that's beautiful and a good person. And... But I'm presenting these my own because they're champion. Their representative is called Christ, who's done something for them on their behalf, something that they couldn't do for themselves. I'm presenting them as blameless, as pure, as holy. They've been declared righteous. And verse 24 says that God does that action with great joy. It excites God to do that. God has passion to do that. God loves loving you like that. I'm remembering Hebrews, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Let me read that. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before Christ. He endured the cross. How did he endure it? The joy that was set before Christ. Scorning and shame and then for the joy that he felt, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Therefore, consider Christ who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Don't we grow weary and lose heart? Let's just be real. We do, and Jude is saying, "Hey, hey, wake up, a minute. Wake up. You're going to lose heart. You're going to grow faint and weary. Yeah, you're being kept. You really are. You're being kept. And even in this uh, little little letter here, you know, he wants us to contend for the faith. He, he wants us to present the faith. He does. He's wanting us to to profess the faith." But but our hope is not in our ability to contend for the faith or to argue for the faith. Our hope and the hope of the gospel is he is contending for you. He's fighting for you. And whatever it takes, however dramatic the story is, you're going to be kept. He says, I'm kept by the power of my Savior. He, He is our keeper. Let's close it out right here and just pray and give God thanks for this. Lord, we just confess right now, we're just just scratching the surface. There's so much more here about who you are. You are beautiful, Father God. The summation, the weightiness of all of your attributes, which we can't even name, they're, they're endless. They never even had a beginning And even this week, some of these images from this new telescope helping us see just the glory. Even as your Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Lord, thank you for these new images that that, that, that we're able to to, to see your beauty. We uh, thank you. You deserve all glory. We thank you for keeping us and not allowing us to utterly fall away. And we pray that you would uh, help our lives. Honor and glorify you. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus.